to have you here. If you're visiting with us, you are an encouragement to us. We hope that we can be an encouragement to you today as well. I want to start this morning by saying thank you. Thank you for being loving and supportive and encouraging. That's not to butter you up for something I'm going to say later. I just want to thank you. You know, in my travels as a preacher, I have the opportunity to meet a lot of preachers, a lot of elders. And in my discussions with them, I have unfortunately heard a lot of horror stories. It seems like a lot of preachers are dealing with difficult situations in the church that they are preaching to. And it's not doctrinal matters necessarily. It's usually something like a domineering leader who wants all the control, and so they micromanage the preacher. Sometimes it's a sore head or a group of sore heads that want to have their way, and so they cause problems. Sometimes it's nothing more than the preacher having a vision and wanting to implement uh, maybe a, a vision or a new way of thinking and doing things that are not necessarily doctrinally wrong, just a new way of thinking and pushing forward, and, and they meet resistance every time they come up with a new idea. I want to say thank you for being so loving and supporting and encouraging because I hear discussions like this and I have um, opportunity to talk with preachers and it makes me realize just how fortunate that I am. This past summer I had the opportunity to be in the mountains with a bunch of preachers. I do that every summer and we're all sitting around and the ones driving the conversation were Bill Watkins and Jeff Jenkins, two men that I have the utmost respect for. And so there's all these preacher friends of mine sitting around in a circle and we're talking and I'm listening to the discussion and I'm listening to the things that these preachers are talking about and I think to myself, I must have been in a spiritual bubble my whole ministry career. I mean, the things that they're talking about, I've never come close to experiencing. The heartaches and the difficulties that they're talking about, the ill treatment, I'm thinking, I don't even know what that's like. And I want to say to them, let me present... Oldham Lane as exhibit A for how a church is supposed to do it and how a church is supposed to function. And so I thank you for that. I thank you for being so loving and encouraging and supportive. Now, it's not that you guys don't like to tease a little bit, right? Certainly, this is a congregation that if you're on staff here or if you're even one of the members, you better be ready to have a little back and forth and a little bit of joking and and teasing, you know, I, I can tell you just about every Sunday, either uh, in, the, in the lesson, uh, before the lesson on Sunday morning or after it, I'll have somebody come up to me and say something like, that was a good talk or a good speech, or, you know, you've quit preaching and gone to meddling, or somebody that says, you're going to make a good preacher someday, you know, that's all, it's all in jest, right? At least I think it is. And then there are those times after Blake or Jake preaches for me, like Blake's going to fill in for me next Sunday, and guarantee you when I get back, somebody will say, hey, you better watch it. Blake's going to take your job. Blake doesn't want my job, trust me. But, or there's people who come up to me and they say things like, that was the best sermon you preached all year, and I didn't preach, obviously, so that's why they said that. But I'm going to expect some of you to raise your game because I was reading this past week about the weirdest things said to the preacher before or after his sermon. You guys got a long way to go to match these. According to Tom Rainer, CEO of Lifeway, here are some of the weirdest things actually said to preachers. Somebody once said, we need a small group for cat lovers. 
I guess they were going to serve fancy feast at the meal. Preacher, you need to change your voice. Yes, ma'am, I'll try to have that done by next week, right? You shouldn't make people leave the youth group after they graduate high school. That's going to get a little strange when they're 70 and still coming to the youth group events, right? <laughs> if Jesus used a songbook, then why can't we? Pretty sure Jesus used the paperless hymnal. Why don't we have ashtrays in the fellowship hall? They're right next to the spittoons. Uh, your wife never compliments me about my hair or dress. Maybe there's a reason for that, right? And here's the, here's the most outlandish. I developed cancer because you didn't preach from the King James Version of the Bible. Yeah, apparently there are carcinogens in other versions of the Bible. So I expect you folks to up your game in the coming weeks. But in all seriousness, last week we attempted to observe things from your point of view. We talked about the view from the pew, and we talked about how we need to be able to see things from different perspectives before we make an assessment or a judgment. In other words, we need to be able to put ourselves in the position of another, see things from a different vantage point before we start making a judgment. And so that's what I attempted to do last week. I attempted to do something very dangerous and to speak for you and to say, this is what I think you want in a preacher. And so this morning, we're going to do the reverse. I want to look at what the preacher needs from you. And this is not a gripe session. This is not a bully pulpit. This is not me saying, hey, you need to pick it up a notch. I think, by and large, this is a loving, supportive, encouraging congregation. Everything's going well. But if we want to increase our connectivity and get closer together, I think it's important that we look at it from both sides, right? So last week, we looked at it from your view. This morning, we're going to look at it from my view. And here's the first thing that I need from you. I need you to be biblical. Well, that sounds easy, right? I mean, all of us would say that we're biblical, I think. All of us would probably say, well, I, I believe in the Bible. I believe in the authority of the Bible. Of course you do. But being biblical is about more than just knowing some scripture. It's about more than knowing book, chapter, and verse, so to speak, for every issue. In my travels as a preacher, I have noticed that there are some great churches in our brotherhood that are doing some amazing things. But I've also noticed that there are some churches that are dying where they sit. And until they get out of their own way, they're not going to accomplish what they need to for the Lord. What I mean by that is, say a congregation still has gospel meetings. Some still do, right? You have a gospel meeting, and the purpose of a gospel meeting is what, or at least used to be, to hopefully get people from the community to come in and to hear the gospel, right? You're trying to reach your community. And yet so often, when I'm invited to speak at a gospel meeting or I see churches having gospel meetings, you know what they do? They bang the drum. It's all about just affirming what everybody in the congregation already knows. And it's not that those things are not important. It's just in the moment, the most important thing is to reach out to the lost. Because while they're still banging the drum, the lost are still lost, and no one's reaching them. You see, we talk about being biblical as if it's only talking about what we do within the walls of this building. Five, act, five acts of worship, what we do has to be right with God, and that's true. But being biblical is more than just being issues-oriented and getting things done right when we're together. As we said last week, you can be straight as a gun barrel doctrinally, but empty as a gun barrel spiritually. Being biblical is also about what you do outside these walls. 
You see, we can claim to be biblical, but if all we focus on is what we do here in worship, then we're not truly biblical. Because the, book in, uh, the, the church in the book of Acts wasn't just about what they did when they got together, right? It was about what they did when they scattered as well. As we said before, there's a time to gather, there's a time to scatter. And I'm afraid that in too many places, churches have become so issues-oriented that they have lost sight of lost souls. To be biblical is about more than what we do when we're here. It's about what we do when we're not here. And let's face it, there are churches all around us that are growing, they're thriving. Of course, we are too. But so many times, churches that are dying where they sit they look at the churches around them, in their community even, and they, they, they see the growth and they see them thriving. They, they lose members to them, and they, they automatically, their default response is, well, those people, they just don't want the truth. But we have to admit, there's something to their growth and their thriving. Maybe it's only entertainment, okay? Maybe that's all that it is. Maybe they're implementing some things that, that simply we would not want to implement. But I think at the end of the day, you have to wake up, pay attention, and notice that many times what we're doing and banging the drum and arguing over what version of the Bible is best, they're over there serving. They're in the trenches. They're doing things. There's a time to gather and there's a time to scatter. We better be ready to be biblical outside these walls as well, willing to take the gospel to those who need it. Being biblical is about more than just knowing what the good book says. It's also about doing what the good book says. And the Bible was not meant to be only a, a governor of our worship. It's also to govern our lives and what we do outside these walls. Remember what was written in Acts chapter 9 and verse 31? It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Being a biblical church isn't just about following God's commands to come together for worship. If that's what we do and that's all we do, then we're not entirely biblical. Being the church of the Bible must include being a church on a mission. We should be mission-minded. We should be movement-oriented. Let's live out God's word. Let's, let's seek to be everything that he would have us to be. And that includes letting go of our scruples as well. You know, we have a lot of traditions. We have a lot of opinions. And traditions in and of themselves are not bad necessarily. Scruples are not bad necessarily. In fact, there are a lot of traditions that we cling to that are good traditions that I think we should hold on to. But when they get elevated to the level of Scripture, then we have a problem. Let's make certain that we're willing to let go of our scruples so that they don't hold us back and hinder us from being all that we should be. Sometimes we have to let go of some things, even though we may have a right to think a certain way or believe a certain thing, it's okay to acquiesce to the other person. To say, you know what, me getting my way is not as important as the church being unified and accomplishing its purpose and its mission. Here's the second thing I need from you. I need you to be there. I need you to be there for people who are hurting. I need you to be there for people who are mourning. I need you to be there for people who are rejoicing. Remember all those one another passages that Paul talked about over and over again in his letters? Love one another, encourage one another, build one another up, bear one another's burdens. You get the idea, right? 
Over and over again, Paul talked about being there for one another. The unity that comes through being a church that is on the same page with God and with one another. Remember in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 17, he talks about how we are to, to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. We are a body. We are a family. And family looks after one another. Family takes care of one another. Family weeps with those who weep. It rejoices with those who rejoice. We're there for those who are in need. The gist of what Paul says here in Romans 12 is put the church first. You've heard me say before, at some point the church has to win in your life. Your job can't always win. Your family can't always win. In fact, God should come first. The church has to come first. It has to win at some point. What does that look like? What does it look like to put the church first? Well, I think above all things, it means paying attention to the needs of others and not only to the needs of yourself. It's about community. It's about living for something bigger than yourself. You've heard me say over and over again, this isn't about you. It's not about you. It's about God. It's about Jesus. It's about others, right? Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul also talked about this, this theme of unity and how we are a body that should be all working together for the Lord. And he talks about how, uh, for the body does not consist of one member, but many, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And he goes on with these different body parts, basically saying that all of us are a part of the body, none of us are, are insignificant, we all have value, we all bring something to the table. And if your part of the body is not working, then the body is dead. It's deformed. And somebody else is having to pick up what you're supposed to be doing. And so I need you to be there for others. And I need you to be here. And I realize I'm probably preaching to the choir this morning because you are here. But I need you to be here. Being a member of the Lord's church obligates one to carry out a role. And you can't carry that out if you're not here. I've learned through the years that that my role as a preacher is not to be a policeman. That's not my role. It's not my job to enforce the rules. It's my job to tell you what the Bible says, even concerning those commands, those rules, so to speak. But it's not my job to enforce the rules. No, I've learned that as the preacher, I am more in the climate business. It is my job to create an atmosphere for growth to occur. My job is to create, or at least along with the elders, the other staff members, the deacons, it's our job to create an atmosphere for growth to occur. To set the climate so that you can grow and develop, nurture your faith. But that's a two-way street, isn't it? You have a major responsibility in that as well. I can't make you grow. I can't force you to do anything that you don't want to do. As our elders say all the time, we are the elders of a volunteer organization. And sometimes that can be tough. So we need you to be here. We need you to be invested. And we need you to invest in the work of this church, encouraging others to be a working part of the body as well. Here's the other thing. Christians need other Christians. I need you, you need me, we all need each other, right? So not only do I need you to be there or be here, but I also need you to be you. The other day I was in my office and, and Brianna's little boy, Matthias, comes into my office. He slings open the door and he rushes in and he's dressed like Batman. 
He's got on the mask, the, the, the body armor, the cape. I mean, he looks just like Batman. I thought it was Batman, except he was only about two feet tall. And so he comes in, and he doesn't say a word. He just looks at me, and then he runs out of the room. And I thought to myself, how many people do that in the church? How many people come into church every Sunday dressed up with a mask on, not showing who they truly are? It happens all the time. We think church is for the dressed up, and it's really for the messed up, isn't it? And yet, week in and week out, we come here with our best suit on or our best dress. We have this mask on because we can't show our true colors because what would people think, right? I'll tell you what they'd think. They'd think you were honest. They would think you're genuine and authentic. I think I can say with full confidence that this is a family that would love you anyway. That this is a family that wouldn't turn their back on you. I mean, what good are you doing by wearing this mask? What is that accomplishing? We need to get in touch with who we really are and who the church really is is a bunch of imperfect people that have been redeemed. We're not perfect by any means. We don't have it all figured out. We should be a transparent bunch of people. We should be a cellophane church that people could look through us and see who we truly are, that we are broken at times, that we are hurting at times. And sometimes on our best day, we think, hey, we're doing all right. And we need to be there for each other then as well. Paul wrote this. He said, for I do not understand my own actions. You ever feel that way? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Oh, how I can relate to that, right? Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Imagine the people that were hearing this letter read for the first time. Because these letters were read in front of the congregation. Imagine the people who were hearing it for the first time, what they must have been thinking. I think if, if, this, if this letter was written to us in our day and age, we'd be thinking, Paul, what are you doing? You can't say these things. You're our leader. You're our mentor. You're supposed to be above the fray. You're not supposed to be dealing with these things. And if you are, you don't tell anybody. Leaders are leaders. They don't struggle. And if they do, they don't tell anybody. Why would Paul do this? Because he was trying to show the saints that he was like them. That he was just like them. He struggled with the same things. He's dealing with sin in his life. He's not aloof from problems. He doesn't have it all figured out. I think I told you before, but when I was at North Heights, we had a Sunday where one of our elders answered the invitation. He came forward and he asked for prayers of the church family because he had been struggling with different things in his life. And, and when he came forward, we were all going, what is he doing? I mean, this is Ronnie Dowdy. This guy's got it all figured out. He is the elder of all elders, and he's coming forward. And yet you wouldn't believe how that galvanized the church. Being transparent can bring a church together like, like nothing else. It can galvanize a group like nothing else. I need you to be honest. I need you to be yourself. I need you to let us know if you have problems, if we can help you. I need you to be vulnerable. 
I need you to not pretend that you're somebody you're not. When all is said and done, I can boil it down to this. I need you to be Jesus. It's a pretty high calling, isn't it? That's what I need from you. I need you to be salt and light in the world. I need you to be someone who seeks to do God's will. You're not perfect, nor will you ever be. I'm not suggesting that, that you be completely and totally perfect all the time. I'm just asking that you be like Jesus, that you strive to do your best each and every day to live at the center of God's will and to be like Christ. We need more Christians who introduce Christ to the world by the way that they live. If we are going to represent the superiority of Christ in a sin-soaked world, then we have to start by living out our Christianity. We have to be who we claim to be. You know, as Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard that asked the question, what would happen if there are no preachers? If there were no preachers, what would happen? And he concluded that if there were no preachers, all that we would have left is the lives of Christians. And so he asked the question, what kind of sermon are you preaching? And I would ask you that question this morning. What kind of sermon are you preaching? Because you will be able to reach people in your work, at school, or in other places that I will never even have an opportunity to reach. I preach to roughly 600 people here every Sunday. Maybe a few more than that when you consider the television program. There are over 120,000 people in Abilene. I need you. Christ needs you to go and be him in the world around you. To seek and save the lost. And there is just no denying that the life you live speaks volumes. That character is shown not just in what you say, but how you live your life. Your integrity. The way that you live. That's why I need you to be Jesus. There are people that you can come in contact with that I will never even see. You may be the only Bible that they ever read. How you live your life can speak volumes. What kind of sermon are you preaching? It was Paul who also wrote this. He said, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You are an ambassador of Christ. You know what an ambassador is? It's simply a representative. Someone who maybe speaks on his behalf. That's you. You are an ambassador for Christ. You realize I'm not the only preacher here, don't you? All of you are preachers. At least you should be. And you preach through your words, but also through your actions. You show people Christ. Not just by what you proclaim, but how you live. God is making his appeal through you, through the life that you live, the words that you speak. You think about the impact we could have for the kingdom if we all did this. If we all took advantage of opportunities each and every day to live out our faith. And to show people what Christ looks like. Think about Oldham Lane and how it could grow. Think about the influence that we could have on this community and the world. If we all recognize that we were preachers. And that we have a message that needs to be told. By now I'm sure you've recognized that the things that I need from you are precisely the things that you need from me. If you were here last week, you know that these four things are exactly the same four things that I said that the congregation needs from the preacher. I need these same things from you. I need you to be biblical. You need me to be biblical. I need you to be there. You need me to be there. 
I need you to be you. You need me to be me. And we both should strive to be like Jesus. The only way this is going to work is if we're on the same page, reading from the same script. And so we understand that we both need the same things from one another. And if we both are striving to do those things and to be those things, then I think we can't help but succeed. I want to leave you with a challenge this morning. There's a story about a guy named uh, Joe Cotton. I don't know if you know this guy. Colonel Joe Cotton was one of the premier pilots of his day. He flew the XB, I think it's XB 750 Valkyrie. AB what? XB 70. Thank you, Darren. Yeah. <laughs> like you know anything about this. The XB-70 Valkyrie, which was an aircraft that was ahead of its time, and, and Joe Cotton was ahead of his time. Joe Cotton once spent 33 minutes flying at Mach 3, which was a great accomplishment, monumental at that time. But what was even greater is what happened just 20 days earlier. 20 days earlier, Joe Cotton and his co-pilot, Al White, were flying the XB-70, right, Valkyrie, they were flying this, this aircraft, and they were getting ready to land, but the front landing gear wouldn't come down. Now, if they had landed the plane without the front landing gear, it probably would have broken to pieces. They could have ejected, crashing a $750 million piece of equipment, which by our standards today would be about $5.5 billion. They didn't want to do that. So they flew around for an hour as they tried to communicate with ground control and figure out what was going on. And after an hour, ground control discovered that there were two terminals that weren't communicating. And so they were going to have to bypass the system in order to get the landing gear to deploy. But this is, this is very tight quarters on an aircraft like this. There's no toolbox. And so... So Joe Cotton looked around vigorously trying to find something that could make the connection between the two terminals. And you know what he found? He found a 39-cent paperclip. And by using that 39-cent paperclip, the landing gear came down, and Joe and his co-pilot landed safely. In other words, it was a 39-cent paperclip that saved their lives, more than likely. And I'll tell you that story to challenge you this morning. I want you to be the connection. There are two terminals. There is Jesus and there is the lost. You are the connection between those two. You are the paperclip, so to speak. That paperclip is you. It's the gospel. You are taking the gospel handed down to you to the lost. I've got some paper clips on the table in the back, on the table in the foyer, and on the table in the lost and found. So any door you go out, unless you sneak out here, you should be able to get a paper clip. I've got mine right here. Put it on your collar. Put it somewhere on you. Put it on a keychain. Let it be a reminder to you that we at Oldham Lane are the connection. And we are connecting two terminals. We are taking the connection of Jesus. We are connecting Jesus to the lost. It is us that is providing that connection. I've got them in pretty little colors, so you can pick one that you like that matches. You can get more than one. 
Let it serve as a reminder. Some of you probably feel like you're no more valuable than a 39-cent paper clip, and so you really have nothing to offer. But hopefully, I've shown you this morning, through Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, that you absolutely are significant, that you are invaluable to God and the purpose that He has for you. Be the connection. Be the paper clip. And if we can help you this morning... If you need to be right with God before you leave this morning and before you go out and, and, and try to, to reach the lost, then let us help you with that. If you've been out of service, out of commission, and you're ready to get back on board, let us help you with that. If you need prayers of this church family and you're ready to be vulnerable and be transparent, then let us help you with that. Maybe you're ready to study the Bible with someone because you want to begin a daily walk with God. Let us do that as well. Maybe you have been studying. Maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism. Then that's great too. Do not leave here without being right with God. And when you do leave here this morning, pick up a paper clip as a reminder that that's you. You are the connection between two terminals. David's going to lead us in a song. If you have a need, come now as we stand and as we sing.